Friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to read the first few verses, and then we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. After I read, I'm going to invite all our children to come forward, uh, sit on the front row and on the floor in front of me, and then we're going to do a little exercise together as an illustration for this sermon. So if you'd open in your Bibles, 1 John 1, I'm going to read the first four verses. Hear now God's word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now friends, could I invite our kids forward? If you're a kid, a child, or a child at heart, if you would come and join us on these front rows. Thank you, Judah. You can grab a seat right here. Uh, The ladies can take the seats. You guys can sit on the chairs or on the floor in front of me right here. Come grab a seat. Come on, y'all. Don't be shy. Judy, you can grab a seat up here with these guys. Okay. Um, Good morning, guys. Why don't you grab a seat right over there, buddy? (laughs) How are you guys doing this morning? Great, great, awesome. Yeah, are you guys excited about Christmas? Is anybody going anywhere for Christmas? Where are you going to go? Pennsylvania. Wow, that's going to be a long, long car ride. Um, Well, today we just read a passage that talks about John. John wrote this letter that I just read a little bit from, and John says that he's a witness for Jesus. Now, can you guys tell me what a witness is? Yeah, Judah. Um, A witness is a servant. A servant? Okay. What else? If something happens at your house and your daddy says, I need a witness to tell me what happened here, what are we talking about? What's a witness? Yeah. Yeah, someone who saw something. Exactly. Someone who's there, someone who saw something, that's a witness, that's what we're after. So you could witness, and maybe you guys have done this before, you could run to your mommy or daddy and say, I saw my little brother doing this. Have you ever done that? Have you ever tattled on your little brother or sister? Yeah, maybe you guys have done that. You could also, though, be a witness for good, right? You could run and say, mommy, mommy, my little brother shared with me, and I just wanted to tell you that. Have any of you been a witness for good anytime recently? A few of you have done that. Well, we're talking about seeing things. What are other ways you could witness something? Not just by seeing something, but what's one other way you could be a witness to something? What are the other senses? You could feel, you could touch something. What else? Here. Somebody else? Here. Okay, here. (laughs) Feel, here. What's the other one? Smell. Okay, thank you, Judah, very much. (laughs) Be quiet now. Um, So you could taste things, you could hear things, you could touch things. These are other ways that you could be a witness to something. At our house, we have this very interesting medieval weapon. It's a a short piece of metal, and it heats up to about 1,000 degrees. It's called a curling iron. Have any of you guys ever seen one of these things that mommy wields, and then she takes behind closed doors, and we don't know what she does with it? You guys have seen this? Well, we have told every kid in our house, do not 
touch the curling iron. This is just mommy's. Don't touch it. Don't do anything with us, with it. Uh, but we've got a two-year-old son, Noah, who he just likes to experience things with his body. He likes to get in and sort things out. He's a kinesthetic learner, if you will. And so we've told all our kids this, but sure enough, mommy heats up the curling iron. Noah slips into the bathroom when no one's looking, and he grabs the curling iron full on with his hand and just screams in pain. He has this massive blister on his hand, but now Noah is a witness to the curling iron. In fact, he doesn't call it a curling iron anymore. He calls it a burn you. So whenever mommy takes out the curling iron and she's ready to use it, Noah says, oh, is that the burn you? Are you going to use the burn you? And mommy says, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. Okay, we talked about being a witness. Now I want to put you guys to the test. I've got something hidden in this box, and I want us to use our senses. Judah and Ami are not participating in this. And I want us to figure out what's in this box, okay? We're going to start with touch, and then we're going to go to sight, and then we're going to listen to it, and we're going to try to determine, can we all work together to figure out what this is, okay? So first, we're going to touch it. I need you guys to trust me. You can't see it, but you can reach your finger in and just touch it with one finger. Don't grab it. Just reach in and touch it. I'll let everybody give it a touch. I don't think it's going to bite you. Touch, touch. Got it? Touch, touch, touch. Everybody gets a touch. All right, any ideas of what this might be? Okay, something furry, that's what we got so far. Now I'm going to switch and let you just take a very brief peek at this thing and see if you can tell me what it is, okay? Anybody have any ideas? A what? A ball. A ball. Something furry, a ball. Anybody else have a guess? A rabbit. A rabbit, okay. Good guess. Okay, the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to let you guys hear it and see if you can tell me what this thing is, okay? I'll hold it up to my microphone. You can't see it, but you can hear it. I think. <laughs> what do you guys think it is? A duck, the Aflac duck. Yeah, exactly. You guys did excellent. So you used your senses, and you were able to touch and to hear and to determine what this thing was. Well, that's basically what John is doing here today. We're going to hear in the sermon today how John uses his senses and he becomes a witness. You guys remember that John, he was one of Jesus' disciples. Not only was he one of the twelve, he was one of Jesus' three closest friends. Can you imagine getting to spend that kind of time with Jesus and to be a friend of Jesus? Do one of you have a cell phone on you that you're ringing right now? Um, Well, they got to be a witness of Jesus, and they got to be with him, but there was actually a problem in John's day. You know, Jesus walked with John, he knew John, but Jesus doesn't walk with us in the same way today, does he? I mean, Jesus is here, he's present with us, we're going to celebrate his birthday at Christmas, but he's not going to walk in and sit down to the birthday party in the same way that you and I attend a birthday party, and why is that? What happened to Jesus at the end of his life? Okay, somebody else. What happened to Jesus? Um. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from the dead in his body and he ascended to heaven. And when he's with us, he's with us in a different way than he was with John. 
Now, because of that, some people in John's day began to doubt that Jesus really did come and that he really did what he said he did. Some people didn't believe that Jesus came at all, and some people believed that God couldn't really become a man, and so Jesus must have been like a friendly ghost who walked around and did sweet things. John is going to tell us today that is not true at all, because I was there And I saw Jesus, and I talked to Jesus, and Jesus talked to me, and I touched Jesus. And I tell you as a witness, I was there, and God became man and dwelled among us. Do you think we should listen to what John has to tell us this morning? Do you think we should listen carefully to what he wants to tell us as a witness? Yeah, yeah, okay. We should do that, yeah. So I'm going to pray now and ask that God would help all of us listen to the message that John wants to give us. So let's pray together. Dear God, we give this to you. Lord, you made your servant John a witness. He saw, he heard, he touched. Would you this morning open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to hear from you, from your word. We ask in faith, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. You can jump up and go grab a seat. Well, friends, we're talking about John as a witness this morning. He is a witness to Jesus, as we just demonstrated with our kids here. And in this text, he's going to tell us about a problem that exists. He's going to give us a proof against that problem. And then he's going to make a proclamation. He's going to tell us why he is doing what he's doing. And we're just going to look at each of these things very briefly together this morning. There is a problem in John's day, and we alluded to it with our kids, and the problem is very simple. There were people in John's day who did not believe in Christmas. There were people in John's day attending some of the churches that John had participated in, saying that Jesus could not possibly be 100% God and 100% man. They didn't believe that, and so John keeps bringing that up again and again and again in his letters. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Second John verse 7, for many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. People denied that, people doubted that. Now if you think about it, there's a number of reasons why somebody might doubt that Jesus really did come in the flesh, that God himself became man. There are several reasons to doubt that. One of those in John's day was the idea that everything physical is evil. Bodies, the flesh, this, this world, it's an evil place. And so how, how can God, who is perfect, dwell in a place and taint himself with that which is evil? Other people thought to themselves, how could someone be 100% God and assume 100% humanity and take upon themselves the weaknesses of a human being? How could it be that Jesus could truly hunger and thirst and yet be the eternal omnipotent God? How can we do both of these things? And so these people, they were in the churches that John had interacted with, their little house churches scattered throughout Turkey, and they began believing these things and saying these things, and ultimately they left those churches, but now they're coming back into those same churches, and they're beginning to tell people in those churches, I don't think that Jesus really came in the flesh. That's a problem, and John is writing this letter to address that problem. 
Now we could take a step back for a minute because it might sound that we're like we're splitting theological hairs here. I say tomato, you say tomato. I say Jesus came in the flesh, you say he didn't. When I look at the manger scene, I see the incarnation of the Son of God, that God became man and dwelt among us, and you don't share that belief. Could we not just agree to disagree? Couldn't we say, as long as we agree that Jesus is Savior, who saves us from our sins, do we need to really agree upon the makeup of Jesus? Does he have to be 100% God and 100% man, and do we need to agree on those things? And John says, yes. Yes, a thousand times yes. You must, at the very substance of our faith, understand that Jesus was truly God and truly man. I want to give us just six of the many reasons why Jesus had to become a man. He had to come in his incarnation and become a fully human being so that he could save us from our sins. Here's just six reasons very briefly. Number one, Jesus became man to reveal God to man. Jesus said to Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. By becoming a human being, Jesus is able to reveal God his Father. Number two, Jesus became man to show God's love for man in his creation. This is not a rescue operation. This is not God coming into the physical world so that he can rescue us into the spiritual world, so that we can enjoy this disembodied heavenly state with him in the clouds playing harps forever. This is a physical salvation in which a physical savior enters a physical world. He dies a physical death and he is resurrected in the body because he doesn't redefine death. He conquers death in his incarnation. Jesus had to become a man because he had to save us to renew our bodies and recreate the world. Number three, Jesus became man to be born under the law and to obey the law perfectly, Galatians 4 tells us. Number four, Jesus became man to truly suffer and bleed as a man. Leviticus 17.11 says, It is the blood that makes atonement. 1 Peter 2.24, By his wounds we have been healed. Number five, Jesus became man to die as a man. Colossians 1.22 says, We are reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You do not have Jesus as a human being dying on the cross and you are not reconciled to him. Number six, finally, Jesus became man to become a merciful high priest. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2 says. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. The reason we're saying all this, the reason we lay out these reasons why Jesus had to become a human being, the reality of Christmas, that Jesus was born truly as a human baby, truly as a human being, and yet without any infringement or violation upon his deity, this is not a throwaway bonus bit of theology for the smarty pants in the room to think about and to discuss. This is the substance of our faith. You have a savior who is fully God and fully man, or you do not have a savior at all. You have a savior in Jesus who is fully God and fully man, or you do not have a savior at all. 
Jesus is not just a moral teacher, a good example, a guru, a ghost, an angel, a wishful thought, a saint or a Santa Claus. He is the divine incarnate. He is God made flesh, fully God and fully man. That's the problem that's arisen that John is writing to address. And if that's the problem, that John jumps in with the solution. He says, because you guys are arguing about these things, I want to submit to you this proof of what I'm talking about. Now, we're going to spend so little time on such a massive thought here that I hope you guys are offended by how little we give to the proof that John gives. I hope you walk away offended by this sermon. But, but we're not going to dwell here. John starts his letter by saying, look at verse 1, that which was from the beginning. Now, if we've read John's gospel, that reminds us of the way he started his gospel. In John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that beginning is not so much talking about the manger scene as before the beginning, the beginning of the beginning. We're automatically thinking about eternity past. And so when we think about Jesus and we think about this opening, it takes us to this horizon of forever before. But then John mentions eternal life. And so as soon as we look back and see forever before, we turn around and we look to forever after because we're stretched before us this eternal timeline. It's like this rushing river in front of us, this timeline in which, according to verse 2, we hear, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. Smack into the middle of this raging river of eternity that goes from horizon to horizon, Jesus becomes a baby human being, and steps into the center of this river. And what could not be marked by time or age or change now becomes a physical body born to a virgin. God becomes man. The divine becomes incarnate. The transcendent is now imminent. The heavenly is historical. The unknowable in the divine, becomes the knowable, the seeable, the hearable, and the touchable. Now for us, this is not just a mind-blowing devotional thought. To begin to think about this eternal timeline and Jesus becoming incarnate and stepping into this world, this changes everything. To know that Jesus has come in the flesh, this changes absolutely everything. We just finished reading Exodus in our Sunday morning Bible reading, and we read through the entire book. And you can watch the book of Exodus build this climax. It builds this crescendo. It's like that orchestral piece, Bolero, that just continues layer after layer to build because when you start the book of Exodus, you see God as distant. The people of Israel, they're enslaved to the Egyptians, and they cry out to God, but they don't fully know God. And then God becomes known to them because he names himself, I am Yahweh, I am. And then God becomes fuller known to them because he delivers them out of their slavery of Egypt. And then he becomes intimately known to them because he leads them by the cloud, the pillar of fire and pillar of smoke. And he descends upon Mount Sinai and he gives them the law. And then God builds upon that because he gives them very detailed instructions for the tabernacle, which is going to be a house in which God will dwell in their midst. And then we reach the climax of climax in the very final scene of Exodus in which the tabernacle is built and God descends 
in all his bright and furious glory, so much so that not even Moses could approach the tabernacle for the glory of God in their midst. If you could travel back in time and you could pull aside a 15th century Israelite and say that this very God who dwells before you in inapproachable light is going to put on a pair of sandals and he's going to make friends with prostitutes, that Israelite would have stoned you for your insolence. And yet here is God taking on flesh itself and dwelling among us. And John says, I am a witness of these very thing. I swear to you, I've touched him, I've heard him, I've seen him, I've spoken with him, me and the apostles and thousands others. We have seen God in the flesh and I declare to you that this is so. That's the problem. John inserts this proof and says, I have seen it and interacted with it, and I am a witness. And now we get to John's proclamation. Why why does he do all this? Why does he take the time to invest, to answer these heretics, and to say all these things? Very simply, John is not a casual witness. We talked this morning with our kids about running and telling mommy or daddy something happened, my little brother did this. We're not a casual witness when we do that. We want a very specific aim to happen. We want spankings, we want groundings, we want timeouts. We got an agenda when we go to mommy and daddy and say something about a little brother or a little sister. John's the same way. He's not a casual witness here. He's not writing these things down for posterity's sake. He has a very specific agenda, and he tells us in the opening paragraph of his letter, this is why I'm taking the time to do this. Look at verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, here's the reason why I'm writing these things, You too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The absolute central driving, consuming thought for John to stick his neck out and to answer these heretics is so that we might have joyful fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Or to use Jesus' words from John's gospel, so that we might be born again. I write these things to you, I submit this witness to you, so that you will have fellowship with God. You know, if you take the time this afternoon to read the rest of this chapter, you just kind of work through it verse by verse. First John 1, you see a very simple explanation of how it is that we can have fellowship with God in the simplest of terms. Verse 5 says that God is light, that he's perfect. He's absolutely perfect in all he says or does or thinks. But in verse 6, we learn that we're not. We live in darkness and we sin. And because we sin, we do not have fellowship with God who dwells in light. Verse 8 actually confronts us and says that if we say we don't sin, if we say we don't dwell in darkness, we're kidding ourselves. We're not kidding God. He sees our thoughts. He sees our hearts. He sees what we do. We might barely be kidding the person next to us, but we are absolutely kidding ourselves if we say, I am not a sinner. But then we hear the great news of verse 9, which says that if we confess our sins, God, he's faithful and he's just, and he will forgive us 
of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and he will invite us in to this joyful fellowship between him and his son. Let me ask you, friend, this morning, do you have joyful fellowship with the Father and the Son? Have you experienced this? Have you come before a God who dwells in light and have you confessed, I am indeed a sinner? And do you know that Jesus has come in the flesh to take your sin upon himself, to pay the penalty of that sin on the cross forever and completely so that you might have fellowship with God? Have you done that and do you know that you've done that? I was with a couple of friends a couple of weeks ago. We were sitting in my office and we were reading Romans chapter 5 and talking about what it means to have peace with God. And a friend asks, do you need to know the day and the hour in which you have fellowship with God? Do you need to be able to pinpoint in your life, this is, this is the moment when I gained fellowship with God? Do you need to be able to do that? That's a fantastic question that all of us should ask. And very simply, the answer is no. You don't need to know the moment or the hour. Some of us, we grew up in a home in which we heard the good news of the gospel from the very beginning. We can't even remember when we began to confess our sins to God and to receive his forgiveness. Some of us have a very different testimony, but we came out of a a works-based community. We were in a church that emphasized the things that we do for God, and we transitioned into a grace-based community that begins to say that the good news of the gospel is not what I do for God, but what he has done for me in his son Jesus. And over time, we've understood that gospel. And I couldn't even tell you if that was a February or if that was late in November of which year. I just know today that I have fellowship with him. You do not need to pinpoint the hour, but friend, you do need to pinpoint the fellowship. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you enjoy this fellowship with the Father and with his Son? This is the height of the gospel when we think about Christmas, God coming for us on our behalf. Do not let another hour of this season pass without asking yourself this question, Do I have fellowship with God? Without asking your spouse and your friend and your child this question, do we enjoy this fellowship with him? And how can we know this for sure? Please do that and talk to somebody about that. For those of us who here now can say, I have done that. I might not know when I've done that, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I've confessed my sins before God, that I've trusted in him alone for my salvation. I do that and I know that. I don't know if you're like me when you approach Christmas and you think about a passage like this and you think about the manger scene, if you have this niggling fear in the back of your mind. If when you see Jesus as God incarnate coming for the salvation of the world, you begin to think, I wonder what the Father thinks about this. Because God himself, he dwells in inapproachable light. He has been incensed by what we have done and what we continue to do. And I can't help but fear that Jesus is just kind of stepping in at the last minute and he's saving us from his father. Jesus stands in between us and God the Father as a mediator and God is angry with us, but Jesus loves us. And because he dives into the incarnation in the final moment, we're saved from the wrath of God. It can kind of feel like a dysfunctional family where dad is about to strike the child and mom jumps in and intervenes and now dad stomps around the house in frustration and shows his displeasure by ignoring his children. 
if we let it, the gospel can begin to feel that way. When I see the manger, I see someone who is intervening between me and a very angry father. If you think that, look afresh at what John is saying in this letter when he writes to us in verse 3, the fellowship we have is with the father and with his son. If we fear unity within the Trinity with respect to how God thinks about us, John doesn't share that fear at all. He was the one that recorded Jesus saying, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that God himself, because of his great love for us, sends his son Jesus, that if we will receive that free gift from him, we will enjoy joyful fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, even now, I believe that there are some here who wonder, do I have this fellowship with God? And maybe some who even wonder, I'm too embarrassed to ask somebody what this means. I pray that you would give us courage, Father, to approach each other and to approach you and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we do and can enjoy fellowship with you through your Son. I pray that we would not let another day pass without asking another person that. And Lord, if we are in you, I pray that we would revel in this truth, that the fruit of being a son or a daughter of you is joyful fellowship with you and with your Son, Jesus. Give us that joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.